Hello, and welcome to Data Unchained, a podcast about making data a global resource. I'm Molly Presley. I'm the host of Data Unchained. Today, I'm really pleased to get to welcome Roxanne Guggen. She is a woman of many talents and has had a great experience in the investment community as chief futurist of Group 11. She is an investor and was also the longtime thought leader and 20-year producer of the High Tech Observer, a guidance newsletter on high-tech stocks. Roxanne, you have an amazing track record of predicting global trends on the economy, on technology. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about your background? It's pretty varied. I got a BSEE back in 1980, which was uh, the worst year you could possibly graduate from college until 2008. Uh, And I had a lot of experience doing different things. I was a co-op. I put myself through college working at IBM. So I, I worked in manufacturing. I worked in hardware development. I worked in software development, uh, ranging from you know, assembly language, uh, programming 8-bit controllers all the way through mainframes. Um, And after, and and unusual for people in this day and age, I worked a year and a half in manufacturing, which was a fabulous experience. And I think something that's going to become much more relevant as we discuss going forward. Um, After my MBA, I worked in venture capital equities, and debt. So when I walk into a situation, uh, I have a lot more experience than other people in the room because I've done it myself. And that gives me a broader view of the trends that are changing our lives in a macro way that tend to be missed by people with narrower viewpoints. That's a fair point. And I think as we prepare the audience for this conversation and the background, you know, one of the things I think that's really unique about you is often you say the unsaid, you know, sometimes the messages you bring aren't the rosy side of what's going on in the world, but also looking at some of the more difficult challenges we're facing. Um, and, and I think that's really valuable to be able to look at both sides of the coin, figure out, you know, how might this affect future of both for humans as well as for our technology. And it's something I'm really excited to dig deeper into with you. Great. So where does your experience, you you really dug into a lot with the technology side. I know that you were working with data way back, even with um, Larry Ellison with Oracle. Can you tell us a little bit more of your experience, even back on the data side as well? Oh, I was, I made my bones on Wall Street originally doing two things, both of which were fascinating. Uh, one was following the disk drive business. The disk drive business was the industry that Clayton Christensen followed in writing Innovator's Dilemma because it changed so fast. And it had to keep up. It was a, it's a relentless business, so it was fascinating to watch them survive and not survive. And then the other thing that I did was, I, you know, because, again, I worked in software, um, I was able to understand very quickly the power of not only the ability of semiconductors to grow in power, 
that seems to be lost on people even back when Moore's Law was still alive. Uh, but the power of new abstraction layers. So Ted Codd developed the relational database at IBM in the 70s. And because network-based databases at IBM performed faster and had a big revenue stream, IBM just sat on it. But Larry Ellison didn't. So he uh, got hold of the software. I think it was an ANSI standard and backported it to every single Linux system. And, and everyone said, oh, that'll never work. It's too slow. What are you doing? And I'm like, this is going to take over the world. Okay, this is 1987, just to give you an idea of, you know, what it was running on, the limited power, and Larry wasn't popular. <laughs> I'll say that. All. <laughs> and I mean, just, just as an aside, I, his first analyst meetings, I filled half the chairs. There were two rows. Okay, it, it was at the Marriott at, at the San Francisco airport. And, 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 you know, I was just relentless. He was just relentless. No one else. Again, they could, it was so big, they couldn't see it. And it was just immediately obvious how transformative this was. Um, and who would have guessed how big it got? Which, you know, again, is kind of a message that I'll repeat is happening again. If, you know, and we can go on, you know, go on about that. So, um, so that was really, uh, I mean, I don't know how much more you had to do in that day and age. And again, later on, um, after the dot-com bust, and we can talk about that, uh, in 2002, it became obvious to me that the architecture that would replace single system image servers that were proprietary, which is, again, what the world ran on back in 2002, was going to give way to these, I called them gangs of, of commodity servers, and that you had to spread this, the data across them. And this was before the term cloud computing existed, before the term data lake existed. Uh, but it was obvious where the architecture had to go. You know, if you, if you just, again, took everything into account. Um, so until that time, so that was, you know, and even to now, relational databases are useful. I think they're coming to the end of their useful life because I think, and, and we'll talk about this later, I guess, because the environment that we're in is getting too chaotic to support such backward looking and rigid architectures. I think there's a couple other trends before we kind of start talking about the future a bit more. You've bumped into David Flynn and his companies a few times. You talked a bit about the evolution of hard disk drives, but where did you see, what got you excited about Fusion IO and the work they were doing with SSDs related to these architectures? Well, again, it took me about one second. I mean, because <laughs> <laughs> I understand disk drives, I understand storage, I understand latency. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it, it, they're so slow and they're awful. Uh, and uh, so it's one of those obvious moments of a new technology comes out and everyone is used to something else. But once you look at the merits of the new technology, it became obvious. It was it was literally in one sentence. It was, well, duh. Like, of course, you would do this if you could. And then the challenge there again and people couldn't see it again was um it was very expensive back then i mean the the yeah the 
chips where the NAND was, you know, it wasn't very reliable. It uh, you had a lot of bad gates in there and it was super it was per bid. It was so much more expensive than, um, you know, than any alternative that you could possibly have. And so you had to look a few years into the future and say, well, that, you know, Moore's Law still alive. We're still shrinking. This will be taken care of. And with a lot of software, which they just didn't even know half of what Dave was doing. I mean, that's the crazy part. Like, you know, what he did was so amazing. But, you know, he went over all the problems and exactly how to solve them. And just to give you an idea of how far ahead of his time he was, Intel came out with this NVMe alternative. I mean, I hate to say this, Micron, who kind of adopted it, is still ramping it. That's right. So yeah. this is yeah. 2004 compared to 20, you know, 22. That's how far ahead. Tech, that's, that's an enormous amount of time. It's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, so that's how far ahead of the curve, Dave, you know, continues to be. Uh, so it, it was just obvious. Again, things are just obvious to me. And uh, <laughs> that was just very obvious that it would work and that the world really could use that. You know, because access to data is so critical. It's your competitive advantage. And that's a piece I'd love to talk a little bit more about. I know that you were very involved early on also with the idea of AI um, processing with GPUs. Um, and that's an area where data becomes so important. If GPUs are interesting, they're very fast, they do things efficiently. Artificial intelligence is a fantastic idea, but you can't get data to it is much less valuable. But I think just talking a little bit about how did you come across the concept of AI and the value that GPUs would add? And as you think about, you know, the next things that are going to happen with the value of data, how do you pull those all together in your mind? Uh, the AI thing, I, in, you know, I didn't introduce it to the world at all, but I sure introduced it to Wall Street. And uh, I don't remember putting out a bunch of pieces. It was 2016 explaining everything. It, again, it was just obvious. I, and, and I forget where, you know, I read a lot. I don't know. I picked it up. I'm sitting here in Park City, like no one came over and told me about it. And uh, and it was just obvious, again, the power of it. And and I remember writing this thing. I had a business partner who would uh, sell, you know, he, he was my sales agent. And he's like, no one's heard of this. Uh, you could have bought um, NVIDIA all day at 33 bucks. Okay, which is what I was doing, uh, because, you know, they're like, well, it's like this so so game vendor. Like, what are you even talking about? I'm like, this is the next world. Like, you know, like this is so powerful. You have no idea, you know. And anyway, and, uh, you know, how can I say it? Uh, You know, and it was clear, just like you said, you couldn't do this on. Okay, I am not an Intel fan. Never have been. Like I knew Intel was toast again by about 2015. And it was just obvious they couldn't get off their old architecture. They were stuck on 14 nanometers every they lost the the um the smartphone business, so they didn't have the volumes. Uh it was pretty obvious they were toast and they were mismanaged. Uh so you couldn't use a CPU and it was just a new form. You know, everything was coming together. The software needed the parallelism, just like you said, and and the low cost. And uh, and there was NVIDIA. And and, and they were just starting to use it. And, and it, it, you know, like I said, my partner was like, 
no one's heard of this. And I said, that's not my fault. Like they're hearing it. And again, this was my reputation because I would come up with things from outer space and they just couldn't even believe it. And then it would happen. You know, I think one of the things that I, I admire about what you do, you, you understand the technology well enough to be able to identify the value of the technology, not necessarily the brand. And as we kind of talk about what's going on in the world today, I know that you're starting to think a lot about that the big brands maybe are going to start to lose a foothold with all these new technologies come out. Kind of what's your current expectation on where we are today? Well, really, my expectation on where we are today isn't even about technology as much anymore. I used the first MRP systems like back in the 80s. Like I saw with my own eyes what intelligence would do to revolutionize productivity. And, mm. and back in the 90s, I re, it, I'll just, you know, this is dating myself, but it just tells you the magnitude of what's happening. So I lived through the 70s, you know, not a lot of fun, lived through the 80s. And every time you turned around, there was inflation. Like you were just so stuck and it was debilitating. And so in the 90s came, I saw, I was on Wall Street again by that time. And, and, and I could see the inventory turn because we used to worry about things like inventory turns. Like that's how you measured a stock, believe it or not, back then. Yeah, and I remember that. Okay. And, and, and Western Digital particularly went from four turns a quarter to a hundred. Like I, I, it was stunning. And, 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 I, and everyone's in the early nineties are like, well, we can't, or the economy's growing. We're going to get inflation again. Everyone had PTSD. Right. And, and it's, and, and, and I said, we're going to grow without inflation because people are buying these computers and they're actually getting more output from a given input. And you can grow without inflation for that reason. And uh, that's exactly what happened. That is the force that gave us the fantastic 1990s stock market because no one thought that could happen. And so now you're running into, I used to call it the taconomy. And I'm not the only one that used that, but I might have been the first. Um, and it's, you know, you can no longer separate technology from socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so now I'm going to talk about uh, you know, your answer about brand. So as technology got more and more powerful and everyone had the cell phone deeper into our lives, way into our heads, the merger between technology and socioeconomics is like pretty thorough uh, by this point. It's, you know, humans use tools and fire was a big one. Uh, and uh, I would say, you know, digital technology is kind of up there uh, at, at that level. So uh, what happened in the 2000s, which was interesting, you had the blow up and we can talk about why that was obvious later if you want. Uh, and then we had it was a disaster. It was like you had to be there. It was so awful. And and that is exactly what allowed the cloud to exist. You had to go through that difficulty to get everybody through all the hard work of all the progress to make the cloud actually cost effective. It was not easy to do. And everyone had to do it and they only did it because life was hard. And so, you know, so then we got to this point and through the, you know, this century so far, 
when you were looking at the progress of technology, it was in a vacuum. Uh, our society was stable, right? Um, the economy, you know, we had 08, you know, that was a bit of a problem. But generally, uh, you know, we knew what the government was going to be. Uh, you know, our houses weren't burning down. I mean, things were a lot more predictable than they are now. And mm-hmm. so what you saw, you could say, well, Facebook is going to grow with this smooth curve, you know, because this is how fast things grow. And you assumed that the world around them was static and predictable. Right. Okay, to a point. And that's an assumption. That's not a given. We were lucky. So we had that. And in that time, the driving force was the technology. And so you would associate with the brand name. And then as you think about also some of the other destabilizing factors were there front of mind, I think, for all of us right now, political challenges, war, what's going to happen with oil, where will it come from? Do you feel like this all ties together into the, the concept of those who will flourish will be able to handle this instability? Kind of how do you see the what's going on in Ukraine affecting all of this? Uh, I'll go back to what's going on even on a broader scale. I think Ukraine is a symptom, not a cause. So the cause, and I'm going to borrow heavily from people who thought about this, okay? So there's Ray Dalio, the changing world order, and then there's William Strauss and Neil Howe, and they did the fourth turning. And all of these guys are predicting a repeat of the 1930s in the 2020s, and that is not a compliment. Um, so uh, the fourth turning guys, William Strauss and Neil Howe, and Neil Howe is pretty active on YouTube. You can see him talk. William's kind of low key. Um, is about every fourth generation, it, it, you just get this repeat of all the mistakes that have been made through the millennia. It's like people don't learn a thing. You know, and at first they all get along and increasingly each generation as it doesn't see the hardships of the first generation, they get kind of more spoiled and lazy and then they and then just everything ends up in fighting. And so that's their observation. Now, doing the same historical viewpoint um Ray Dalio, who's, you know, incredible, I just can't say enough about him. He has spent hundreds of millions of dollars not only going through each era of history, but from a financial standpoint, he has done things like uh, measured GDP per capita for the last 500 years. You know, and, and and these are hard numbers. <laughs> and then and then he's he is so out there. He has these mental models of what's going to happen. Then he applies numbers to them with historical data. Then he runs the model to see if it works compared to what you know recent history was. And then he runs it forward. Um, so his data are uh, second to none. And. We are currently in what he would describe as um, the end of a large debt cycle, which means our government has um, issued too much fiat currency for its ability to pay and for, importantly, the ability of the system to produce goods and services. And when that happens, you start to get inflation. 
which is what we're seeing. And inflation isn't really prices going up. It's the dollar going down. You know, people kind of get it upside down. You know, like your, your house did not go up in value. It's the same house, you know, but uh, the dollar sure did. Uh, so, and when you combine that with um, wide income divides in a country, and then what follows from them, does this sound familiar, is wide political divides in a country, and people aren't working together, and then you add an economic downturn, you can get violent. And this is the history of the world. Like, it happens again. Again, it's just like it's like we learn nothing. <laughs> Our tools are better, but emotionally, we're apes in the savannah. We just learn nothing at all. And so we have a lot of symptoms of, and, and it's like we really, you know, maybe it won't be so. You know, you don't know if it's going to be exactly like the 1930s, but it's going to be disruptive. You're going to have, and, 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 and I think one of the main things to be aware of, and this goes back to technology, is, you know, post-World War II, America, you know, ran the show, right? And, you know, <laughs> as I always say, well, the failure rate of world leaders is 100%. You know, otherwise, we wouldn't be the world leader and be so young, right? Someone else would have hung on somehow, but no one ever has. And so, uh, you know, just pay attention there. And and it's and I'll bar again from Ray Dalio, but he's not the only one. So underneath all this change is just evolution, like change just never stops. And after the war, the, you know, the war, the world wars, everything settles down. Someone gets to be in charge because they beat everybody else. They set up these systems that are supposed to last forever, you know, that. That, that benefit them and that organize productivity and, you know, political activity, right? So the World Bank, uh, you know, banking in general, large corporations, you know, that all came uh, with political stability and the rise of IT. It's interesting how companies grew in size directly as a function of how big their computers could be, right? You know, you didn't get a global corporation until you got the cloud. You know, first it was mainframes and, you know, and every, everyone was kind of small. And then as they got bigger and bigger, anyway, you see the point. Well, I think that even countries were measured on their compute power. Which company has the most, the biggest supercomputer, the most compute power? Like there is a race even to that, to, to your point. Uh, there is, and it matters. It's, it, again, it doesn't determine. It matters. Those are, those are. Right. So. It, it, and sometimes it's a perception, if nothing else. It, it's like necessary, but not sufficient. I would say. Uh, but, you know, so going back to this whole techonomic thing, the forces that are in place, and this goes back to your question about brand names, actually, is uh, so, you know, you had Oracle, you have, you know, stuck data structures, you have these big corporations, you know, all of which are blowing up. I mean, look at Boeing, look at GE, look at IBM. They're all just, you know, Time has changed, and, and these quote-unquote permanent companies are blowing up one after another as the world under them changes. In a fourth turning or in a big debt restructuring cycle, you know, both of which the guys with numbers think that we're in, <laughs> like we are in this now, um, it's creative destruction. It's painful, 
uh, there's a lot of losses. But as the world changes, you need to change the structures that run it or else there's no progress. That, that doesn't happen. Who is your model for a next-gen success story? Who do you look at that you think is the model of the way, what will succeed coming through this? Uh, I'm going to now change channels to Nassim Taleb and Anti-Fragile. Uh, so he has thought quite a bit about long-tail probabilities and who lives in times of low visibility and chaos. Uh, and they tend to be agile. And they tend to be small. Um, but the, the one company that does come to mind and the one entrepreneur that does come to mind is Tesla. Uh, and he thrives. I mean, even this past quarter, you can just see it in the numbers. All these, you know, GM, Ford, they can't get parts. They have just boatloads of cars sitting there because their rigid production systems can't deal with the shutdowns in China that just keep changing, you know, and this is not going to end again. We're never going to get rid of COVID and we're going to get, I think, more and more of these things, particularly in the animal kingdom as our environment degrades. You know, you're seeing the H1B1 uh, bird flu. They're killing millions of chickens. There's the swine flu. Uh, so, you know, we're always going to be being kind of upended by these things. I think that's the new normal. Um, but right now in China, it's COVID and, um, and, 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 and the old car companies are, they can't deal. And, and, and again, on the Tesla call, people were asking, how did you get the parts? And, it, you know, <laughs> Elon, I guess he was pumping up the stock so he could get it high enough to get the loan to buy Twitter. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you know, and, and he said, uh, you know, we hustled. It, it was that simple. Uh, and having been in manufacturing, you know, again, I remember when when FedEx went to 50 pounds, we had a party, you know, because our lines were always shut because there was something that wasn't there. So I know what that feels like uh, to have to hustle through things. And, you know, it's chaos. You just have to hustle through. So I would definitely uh, say uh, Tesla is the prototypical because I'm going to go a little further at the moment and then we can get back, you know, and, and, and again, hammerspace fits right in the middle of all this. Um, I, I, I'll go back to, again, just looking at stocks. You have 30% declines in Netflix and Meta. And, and I do think that as we deglobalize, which is, again, part of this fourth turning business, um, is... Uh, it's the, you know, for the last 20 years, what mattered was effectively eyeballs and selling Chinese stuff to American teenagers and like supremely unproductive thing. <laughs> but uh, and, and I think that the end of those stocks is the end of an era like they're not coming back. Uh, and I do believe that manufacturing is going to come back to America uh, and that that will end up being very good. And again, the people that are there first are going to be the next cloud computing vendors. They're going to do very well. Uh, but it won't be easy. If that, and, and you can't wait. Like you can't wait for someone else to be first. You have to just believe this or not and just dive in. So you're talking a lot about, you know, the types of companies that are going to rise above in this fourth era, so to speak. Um, what do you think the outlook is for financial markets short term? Kind of the near-term outlook. 
well, it's uh, it, it depends on the bond markets. And again, not many equity people understand this. So like everyone who understands bond is looking at that 30 year yield at the moment. And it's, you know, it, it could be breaking the 40 year downtrend. Right. That was predicated in part on global uh, supply chains. And and it, so and, and it's not clear what's going to happen. We have deflationary pressures that are very strong. We have kind of transient-ish inflationary supply pressures, and then we have too many dollars sloshing around, okay? So those are the key factors. And if the Fed, if we uh, fail to sell our bonds, okay, that's typically how uh, currencies die, okay? (laughs) Because there is too much debt out there, and no one wants to admit it. And so we're kind of skating on thin ice. And then the question is, when does the con job end? When do people lose faith in that dollar? That's why the Fed has to get the dollar back down again fast. Uh, You know, um, one of the things that um, Yuval Harari, you know, he says a lot of smart things. And one of the things that he really focuses on is what's unique about humans versus any other animal. And it's that we believe, we can share a belief, and that belief is so strong, we'll die for it. So religion has been, you know, no other animal does that. <laughs> like, we are definitely unique there. And, the, and, and the, the belief that dominates the world right now, it's just so bizarre, is the dollar. That, that is the best replaced religion as the common belief system. When um, ISIS, you know, they're like, kill America. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not perfect. Let me tell you, like, you know, <laughs> I can see why people are mad at us. Um, they want to kill America. You know what they fought over? Dollars. Who got the most dollars? Like, you know, it, it is like Putin. Like, he's trying to upset Western society, but he likes those dollars a lot. And so <laughs> it's, um, but you can't buy your oil with them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so you can see so we're losing our dominance in currencies. People are forming blocks, right? And so what happens and and we cannot afford a failed bond option like that would just start undermining this deep seated belief that people have. And right now, and, and I'm going to jump, I'm changing channels. I'll go back to Ray Dalio is. You know, you can degrade your global currency, but it really doesn't go away historically until there's a replacement. And then, and I don't think it's the renminbi at all. You know, I, I don't think China is nearly as strong as people think. You know, they're, they're not without anything, but uh, they're not like Russia. But uh, I don't think, you know, no one trusts them. They're uh, it's just not it's going to happen. And, and oddly, the fact that our culture just dominates the world, it just makes it more natural that they would use dollars too. And they'll put up with a lot of grief in order to do it because it kind of works. Uh, so um, what happens to the market, to answer your question, is a function of what happens to that dollar. And we are in a dicey situation right now because we're ending a 40-year a down cycle in bonds, and it's not clear where that goes. 
if interest rates go up, in other words, people start selling the bonds, then our government is so obviously bankrupt. Well, it's already bankrupt, but then it's like really obviously bankrupt because the the uh, interest payments will be like bigger than our defense budget in about five minutes. Um, and we obviously can't support that. So they are, you know, the biggest buyer of our bonds is our treasury. That's why they have nine trillion of them sitting there. Um, so if that blows up, then you get the 80% decline in stocks that, you know, has happened before. <laughs> Things like that could happen. History repeats itself, right? <laughs> History just does. And what happens is the people die, you know, so then your grandparents are dead, then your great parents, and then everyone forgets everything, and then they do it again. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day. Uh, so anyway, we're in, I, 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 I'm kind of thinking that that's not going to happen. But again, I'll go, I'll go back to Nassim Taleb. He's like, live to fight another day. Like, you know, first rule, don't die. And and so, you know, you want that bomb shelter baseload of investment. Uh, And then you want um, it's almost like a barbell. And then you want the most change oriented things. The stuff in the middle is what gets obliterated. And so everyone worries, oh, the stock market was up and down this much today. And it's like, you know, half those companies won't even be there uh, because life will be too tough. Life will tear them apart. I could talk to you for hours about this. It's such a fascinating, I mean, I can't tell you the number of questions I want to ask, but for the sake of the time for this episode, and we, as we kind of tie things up, I, we're in a period of chaos, entering a period of chaos. Where, you know, do you see hope at the end of the road? Kind of what do you see over the next few years on, at this next era? Where do you see things going? Well, again, it's like you have to eat your vegetables. Um, you know, again, O2 looked pretty bleak, you know, again, been there, done that. Like the 80s looked pretty bleak. Uh, and so this will look bleak uh, because that is what's necessary to get people off their duff, to do the necessary changes. Because, you know, I kind of look at like the world we live in like a lava flow. You know, like evolution is always happening. We think the ground is stable. It's not. It just changes at a rate that we're not conscious of. And so all the buildings on it are like slowly falling apart, you know, because that's just you can't stop it. I mean, Buddha figured that out 2,500 years ago and like it hasn't changed. And so we have to change and we put in these structures that make us feel good. They're all temporary. Like they have to be. And so that's just the way it is. And so they're going to fall apart. Uh, I was just Herb Stein, who like, I don't know, in the 80s, wrote this down. If something cannot go for go on forever, it will stop. And, you know, we're at one of those moments where we're just, you know, it's the, the come to Jesus. You, you got to change. And it's promising because you're getting off the old shackle. Like, what if we still ran on Sun Microsystem servers? You know, what if we still ran on mainframes? You know, that wouldn't be okay. And, and so you have no choice but to go with it. If that, it's good in the end, but it's not easy. And, you know, the tough get going, and, and you're just clear-eyed about it, right? I mean, yeah, and, and, and if you're the first, I mean, the companies that are the biggest now lived through 
the dot-com bust. Like they were starting then. Does that make sense? And now they're huge. Uh, you know, Google, I don't know. I know CRM was 1999. I think Google was 1998. Uh, and they went public in 04, you know, when there was a lot of dust still in the air. You know, it was not an easy time. Kind of thinking back, most of this podcast really doesn't focus on the company I work for, David's company, Hammerspace. But I have to ask, what's exciting to you about this idea of global data, making data not locked inside of Sun Microsystems boxes and not being stuck in where right next to the mainframe that created it? You know, kind of you just think about data being a global resource. How does that help? Well, it's like having a nervous system versus not having a nervous system. Uh, yeah, like, okay, uh, my, you know, I broke my back. Like, I can't, I can't communicate with my legs anymore. It doesn't work very well. And as, you know, again, look at Tesla, look at GM. GM lives on these real stable, gigantic, you know, hyper-efficiency is going to go away. You know, there will be some cost increases here uh, because agility will take its place. And the, the, the person that, you know, that the company that's, that doesn't have immediate access to all the data, all the time, the stuff that they didn't even think they wanted is in the wheelchair. And then the other guys are going to run past them. It's a chaotic time. So I think this is like oxygen. It creates this vision as you were talking about a lot of lessons learned we lose as older people pass away. It's also with data. You know, there's a lot of data out there. Nobody even knows they have. And don't lose the things we learn. Don't lose the data we created and then make it available to the folks who need it. Yeah, there was a great quote on CNBC from a CEO of a software company. And, and, and he says, you know, the problem with data is it's not available at the time of decision. You know, and you're always like, I know I had that somewhere. And then you spend all this time looking for it because it's locked away somewhere. And you shouldn't have to know that. Uh, it should be, a, you know, it should be the perfect Google search, you know. Right. Have it at the point of decision. So yes. you can be agile and you can get through these rocky times. Hey, Roxanne, is there anything else you'd like to add as we close up? Uh, hang in there. <laughs> it's exciting. Like, don't be afraid of change. You have no choice. Yeah, embrace the change. Yeah, and be the first. To read more about Roxanne, um, there's a couple of articles that I've enjoyed reading. She's published a lot over the years, but recently there's an article called Managing in an Era of Chaos and another called The End is Near. If you want to read more about Roxanne, um, those are great resources. And Roxanne, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com.